This podcast is sponsored by Canaan Valley Spa and Wellness Center in Davis, West Virginia, a new destination in Canaan Valley. Go to www.canaanvalleyspawwv.com to learn more. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Exceptional Parents Extraordinary Challenges podcast. My name is Angie Shockley, and I'm here back from vacation. I've been gone for a couple of weeks, and Dave... I know recorded an episode without me while I was gone, which I appreciate because I was in the Caribbean with no internet, which was a blessing. But I'm here with my partner, Dave Gold. How are you, Dave? It's just good to see you again. And uh, yeah, we had a men's podcast while you were there. It was Tom and I comparing notes on adopted children. and But it's really good to have you here. It feels just in- incomplete without you. <laughs> Thanks. I'm actually glad to be home. And that's saying a lot because I was in a beautiful place, but I'm really excited to for our guest this week. And I have a cat that keeps trying to participate in our podcast today. So we'll see how this works out for us. But I'm excited about our guest today. And as our listeners and our watchers know, Dave and I surprise each other with guests. So Dave is meeting Matt for the first time. And my guest this week is Matt Nanis. And he is the founder of Pivot Point, which is a really awesome program in North Carolina that I'm going to let Matt share about. Welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Absolutely. Good morning. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, it's awesome. Matt and I met, gosh, what was it in? It was in Texas, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Stop and think about where did I feel like we I'm had breakfast you in Fort Worth. In the, That's right. The, yeah. 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 Oh, and, then and you I bought have that my, hoodie. Yeah. Yes, I have on my <laughs> Fort Worth shirt. Yeah. So I did. I got to spend some time with Matt and learn about a little bit about his story and a little bit about what he does. And I just was very impressed, Matt, with everything you had to say and how you run your operation and your heart for what you do. And I thought it would be a really great opportunity for our listeners and our watchers to learn more about you, your story and what you're offering to other people now. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, I'm surprised I got anything in edgewise over the mound of food at that breakfast spot. <laughs> I recall there being quite a lot of sides. We needed a bigger table. But. We did. Yeah, you're right about that. It was good, though. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, fantastic. Shall, shall I dive roll. in? Roll. Yeah, just roll Absolutely. with it. Absolutely. All right. I'd actually posed this question to Angie before we began this formal conversation. And, and I think I will start by saying that around the age of six, maybe seven, I remember being asked for a number of reasons. I remember being asked by my grandfather, who was clearly the patriarch of our family, to pour him a CNC on the rocks with a twist. And and it was in that moment at seven, without really having a comprehension of family belonging, cellular level experiencing of love, that I knew in that moment that I was a welcomed member of the Nanis family. I grew up in Framingham, Massachusetts, outside of Boston. Loving family, upper middle class. We ate dinner together almost all the time. My father is now a retired accountant. So during the tax season, we didn't all eat together. But but for the most part, we did. And, and I say this often and fondly that I grew up knowing intellectually that I was in a loving household. I think with more self-work and processing and therapy and, and other engagements and practices that I do with some consistency these days, when I reflect back on it, I don't recall experiencing or feeling the love so much as just knowing in, like intuitively and without question that it was there. And I, I often wonder if that didn't play a part in some of the 
decisions that I made and behaviors that I exhibited growing up. But my, my grandfather would come to any family event and he would ask my father to pour him a CNC on the rocks. I just casually observed that. And then at one point, my older brother, four years older than me, maybe my, my, my father was putting coats in the coat closet or something for whatever reason wasn't available. So he asked my older brother to pour him a CNC on the rocks. And I think it was about that moment that I started equating significance, maybe not anything more more particular than significance to that request and follow through. And again, another year or two later, and dad's talking to his sister, Andrew's in the front yard, who knows? But I was asked. And somebody helped me with the glass and helped me pour the bottle and how many ice cubes and all that thing. And I just, it felt so significant to me. So for whatever reason, movies that I wasn't supposed to watch because of how young I was, conversations I overheard, for whatever reasons, the combination of them, I had it in my head that there was significance to alcohol, family, patriarchy, belonging, love. It, it just, I, you couldn't convince me that there wasn't a direct, efficient line there. And that was the first of many experiences in my life where mostly booze, but later other substances were correlated directly and extensively in my brain and in my heart, really, to belonging, acceptance, ease, comfort, joy, and all the things that I thought were extrinsically attainable. I think extringently is the word, although I just butchered (laughs) it in the second pronunciation. So I got so that was probably the first time I that that was the first time that that alcohol was a role, had a role, had a playing part in the play that was Matt Nannis' life, childhood. And when years later, I'd go to a friend's house in a neighboring town and their parents went out of town or were just going out for the night and we would raid the liquor cabinet and then invite some some, some girls over. I think this is maybe middle school, but could have been freshman, freshman in high school. And wild turkey, kicking chicken was the second time that I can think back and reflect upon. We were taking shots and making making the faces one might expect when freshmen in high school are taking shots of wild turkey, but trying to like reserve it and, be, and play cool, whatever the hell that meant. And there was a young lady who was invited over that pretty much everyone that I knew had a crush on, and I certainly was no exception. And she acknowledged, we had music playing in the background, and I, after like however many rounds of shots, I started singing along to the music in the background. And she made some comment along the lines of, oh, Matt, I didn't know you had such a nice singing voice kind of a thing, right? Now, I could have just taken the compliment. I could have done any number of things. What I did, as I think back on it, who knows how accurate this reflection is. But when I tell my story, when I think back on that event, I that was the second reinforcement of alcohol, substances, and acceptance. And now I was kicking it up a notch, right? Because now it wasn't familial love and acceptance. The story that I was writing in my head in that moment, I'll tell you, was this is romantic, this was destiny, all the things. And that would continue for the next a better part of a decade and a half. I, I, I took the scenic route in college as an undergraduate. I came up with a whole bunch of valid reasons on the surface that one might struggle at one school and switch mid-freshman year from WashU in St. Louis to GW in DC. I don't recommend that kind of a switch for anyone. It's been theorized that perhaps in hindsight, maybe I would have done better with a gap year. The programs and offerings that are pr- pretty popular right now, cultural immersion, any number of things. I'll be honest, I can appreciate the value of that 
conceptually, I think based on what was going on that, that I later unearthed and processed and unpacked and continue to unpack, I think it would have, I think I just would have gone down a similar spiral, but in another country. And that could have actually ended up being a lot more dangerous than, than the way my, my life played out up until this point. But things got progressively more challenging. I started to experiment with things other than alcohol. I couldn't really hold alcohol all that well. I tried really hard. I thought it was one of those practice makes perfect things. And it just didn't seem to, it just didn't take, didn't stop me from trying, but I kept kind of ending up really hungover, getting sick. I think brownouts, maybe not so much blackouts. It's a whole lot of stories that I've learned over the years in sobriety have, I've conflated a whole bunch of situations and narratives to create stories that really didn't happen. And I also I usually start with this qualifier that I'm, I have this approach in my head of, of to tell my story in the context, my experiences to do so in the context of a 12 step abstinence-based recovery meeting, right? Where one would do that. And it's the kind of the guide rail, the guardrails there are what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. And I like to add this kind of caveat that Everything I'm saying today and what I've said a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I was asked to tell that story in that context is informed by 10 years of continuous sustained sobriety, right? I'm surely adding significance and weight to events that maybe six years ago I would have felt were trivial and or not even recalled at that moment. So here we are. So there's the caveat. I interjected it. But, I don't, but can things, I comment on that one real quick? Absolutely. Because I don't want to interrupt your story, but I just think that's important because I think in the journey of recovery, living a life of sobriety, that's an important point. I And you are actually the first person that's that said that to me. And you said that to me when we first talked. And then you bring that up again now. So I just think it's worth shining a light on a little bit is that we do as humans, regardless of being in recovery, not recovery, whatever the journey is, when we look back, we tend to see things differently than they may have actually happened. Like things were bigger when we were little, that kind of thing. But I think the point that you're making is just is really important that as you do live this life of sobriety and you do perceive things through a different lens as you get older, that the things that happened in your childhood, in your adolescence, you know, high school years, right up into the young adult part of your life, you start to see those things in a different way. And it's going to shift with time and continued sobriety. So I think that's important for anybody who's listening to us, who's also walking this journey. Maybe you haven't heard that, or maybe that isn't something that's really struck you. But I just think it's important to shine a light on that and know that that's how it is. It's not that you're not remembering things. It's more so that you remember them through a different lens. Is that accurate? Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode of Exceptional Parents and Extraordinary Challenges is being brought to you by Mindfully Aware. Mindfully Aware is my company. And through Mindfully Aware, we offer services for folks who are looking for ways to find healing in their lives or looking for ways to just live a more intentional life and finding true purpose and meaning. So if you're interested in the services, you can visit our website, livingmindfullyaware.com. You can also reach out to me directly, mindfulangie at gmail.com. That's yeah, that's what 
that's how I that's how I view it. I I can't retain the story that I told when I was first asked to tell my story eight years ago. But I guarantee you, there's probably three or four mark markers beacons that I touched on over the years. The significance of them, um, who I highlight or recall being in the room, absolutely all of it. The journey that I have gone through and continue to navigate is about fact finding, fact facing, right? Mm-hmm. And that is done through reflection. If I mm-hmm. get, if I'm firing on all spiritual sil- cylinders, then the reflection time is condensed. And like in the moment, I can, if I were to misstep, I can catch that with, through self reflection faster and amend or attempt to, if possible, in a more timely manner. But used to take mm-hmm. me a lot longer than it does now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I hear something in a conversation before we have this conversation with you, Andy, while we're figuring out lighting and recording mm-hmm. devices, and it informs what I may or may not say for the rest of this call. Yeah. So to, yeah. to leave room for that, I think, is really important. I think there's often my experience, I won't assign this to anyone else, my experience in life in general, and in particularly as it relates to recovery, is there's a perception of this is this was my perception of rigidity. The program that I'm engaged in says things to drink is to die. And and I benefited from the fear tactics of that. I needed, I really hate saying that. I can see the value in that lens. And it was assigned to me. I was given that lens. These days I try and shy away from making statements like knowing that I heard exactly what I needed to hear. Because I think the last 20 years of my life have proven that if anything else, I don't have a fucking clue yeah. what I need. Yep. I, yeah. I just, for a second here, too. There's a bunch of things, man. First of all, you're a great storyteller. And your oh, thanks. your authenticity is just so manifest. And I just want to point that out again. And Angie and I just, we managed to hit it we made we we don't we haven't had any inauthentic people and you're not the first so congratulations yeah. <laughs> but, but what i heard from the very beginning that was alcohol was a love language and so you get that and you realize you can look and beat yourself up and think, oh my god i did this but it was all love it was it's just the way and then even what you the last thing you said is instead of needing to beat my to scare the hell out of me i see your story is a love story even beginning with the love language of the alcohol, and then for you now realizing that you you would much rather not scare the hell out of yourself and other people, but take a different approach. And that's also just what comes off in your being, too. I think your loving nature is just very manifest. So, Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, and I've had the pleasure of sitting down with Matt. And it is, it's very real that what Dave's talking about is very real. So any of our listeners, watchers, you get the opportunity to have a sit down with Matt. Please take it because, you you know, we've interrupted your story and I want to get back to that so you can continue on with sharing your journey to got, that got you to where you are right now. But absolutely. I, and I agree. I think that the I do. I'm not in recovery myself. I've, that's something not a challenge that I've had in my life. I've certainly had others, but that's not one of the challenges I've had. But I work with a lot of people in recovery and that comment that you just made about the scare tactics. I see that a lot. I see where that it's beneficial in the moment, I guess is one way to say it. But I'm certainly not one to say it's the right or the wrong way. I don't think it's about right or wrong. I think that everybody's journey is perfect. And our listeners hear me say that a lot. Everybody's journey is perfect. And so whether it's saying we get what we need when we need it or the opportunities are there when we need them or however, whatever language we put on it, everybody's journey is perfect. And so for for where you are now, then obviously you had to walk through 
that fear tactic or, or understand that. And then a little spoiler alert, I think that might be helpful to you and what you do now. But before we get <laughs> to there, I want to take you back, take you back into your story a little bit. So you got yourself into recovery, or maybe you want to share with our listeners how that actually happened. Yeah, sure. Yeah. To hear you rephrase it, I appreciate both of you reflecting what you did. I've gotten a lot better over the years receiving compliments and that sort of feedback. There was a long time where I didn't think I was worthy of those sort of comments. So thank you both. But just to to highlight that point one last time, maybe one last time, we'll see. (laughs) Yeah. The whole concept of saying things like, I heard exactly what I needed to hear when I tell this story or whatever iteration is about to come forth. I don't know. I don't know if I heard exactly what I needed to hear, but I know what I I know what I reflect upon having heard. Like mm-hmm. this is what happened. And I think the reason I reiterate, I'd say that again, is because part of this journey for me and part of the hope of what we as an organization are putting out there and just in general and how I walk through the day, in particular with interactions with other people, is let's take a half step, let's just take a half beat between the emotional attachment of the experience that I'm engaging in and just the facts as I see them still skewed, but as I see them of the experience itself. And I think there's a lot of grace and there's actually a shocking amount of dance room in that half beat. Even I do a lot of mindful guided, mindful meditations on my phone. And one of the concepts that has always resonated strongly with me is disidentification, right? So the shift between I am so anxious right now, or I am so angry right now. And being able to just take a half beat and be like, I am experiencing anger. Mm -hmm. I am experiencing anxiety is so all every part of it, the process, the saying of it, the articulating of it, all of it just distances me from the experience I am engaged in. And I, and my world expands in that small gap and it's not confining and rigid and there is no corner to be backed into in that concept. And that's a fun exercise in retelling this story and being able to note occasionally the little more expansion between the emotional attachment of the events that happened in my life and are happening currently with in the retelling of it. So it's a cool opportunity I am grateful for. And things got, I don't know, to jump back in. Where did I, where was I? Was I in college yet? (laughs) No, you hadn't got quite to college yet. We just you just got the pretty girl love to hear you sing because you took oh, shots yeah, of yeah. Yeah. and that and yeah, and I'll spare you what that voice sounds like. But yeah, I did really well in school. I think I am there's a I'm an intelligent person and I'm a really good at finding out very efficiently how a system works. In mm-hmm. school, I viewed as a system. There were games, there were rules, some of the rules we could bend, some of the rules we couldn't. And as a result, I performed really well in school. And that was a marker that I recall. I'm sure there were other markers growing up from my family. I'm positive of it. What's the ones that stick out in my mind have always been in reflection. What'd you get on the test? Did you make the team? Did you score the goal? Those things. Those are what I recall us talking about. I know there were other conversations. Those are the ones that stuck. And to go back to David, what you had mentioned about the love language, I started equating those to love and acceptance as well. So this was performance-based. This was transactional and performance-based. Later in primary drug rehabilitation, I actually got some information from my family at one of those family intensives that, that shed a light on why maybe that was some of the messaging that I had received growing up. That was, it blew my mind and connected a lot of dots, highlighted 
shown a light on a lot of assumptions or maybe just gaps in knowledge. But I knew as far as I, as far as I was concerned, I knew that to to continue on the trajectory of acceptance, to be honest, ego driven, I don't want my folks to talk about my brother all the time. I'd like them to start talking about me kind of thing. Just my perceptions of being ignored or dismissed. I was going to try and get into WashU and St. Louis. Um, early decision. And my parents had told me, I'm very blessed with my family for so many reasons. One of them was we were in a position where the majority of my tuition at the time through grandparents and apparently a quite a lucrative bar mitzvah was, was <laughs> I was relatively sorted. Um, I would imagine if it only took me four years to graduate undergrad, I would have been completely sorted, but it took the time that it took. But the condition was I couldn't go further west than the Mississippi. So I applied early decision to watch you in St. Louis, which is geographically about 10 minutes shy of the Mississippi. <laughs> and I got an early decision to the business school. I've shared this in other talks before, like there's some crazy math about, and I did it because I wanted people to know just how few people who applied early decision to the Wash U business school got in. Cause I was like, surely you're not going to talk about Andrew anymore. It's my turn. And maybe that was the case because I only knew the conversations we were having in the household, but my perception was it didn't make a lick of difference. And yeah, went over there, found the, the frat that had the best pot. You could drink on, I think WashU in St. Louis is like one of the second and biggest endowments in the country as a university. Maybe it isn't anymore, but like next to Emory, uh, was it Coca-Cola or Pepsi? Probably a problem that I don't know what it is. But anyway, <laughs> Anheuser-Busch was, was there endowment was wash you endowment. i think it's the anheuser-busch school of law or at least it was and i liked that about that school and we had ras buying us um boots they'd go to the and as long as it was observed and everyone was over 18 apparently it was fine it wasn't fine for me it was really appealing and i would drink to excess as often as possible because it was an escape that just prevented me from having to experience or walk through social anxiety I learned that the what the way I learned to navigate college or high school didn't work in college. It wasn't just get to know the teacher because the teacher didn't particularly, my perception, the teacher didn't really care who I was. So I couldn't, the whole approach in high school was, come on, that didn't work in college. I'm so cool. Was, We're cool. Yeah, come on. Yeah. It, it didn't translate, at least not at Wash U. So I started to get really scared and felt really isolated. I had plenty of friends in our dorm and plenty of social opportunities, but I, I can be terribly alone in a crowd of people. And uh, that experience really began probably the first semester of freshman year in college, just experiencing that. It never had occurred to me. That was, I just couldn't wrap my head around that concept. So I transferred to GW where my brother was, where a number of my high school friends had gone and were accepted. And I figured, all right, I don't know this system. I don't understand this social scene. And that's what I understand college to be. So I'll go to the school where my older brother's been there for three or four years. And all of my, and some of my friends from high school are now, and they've already done the heavy lifting. So I'll just ease into their social network. And I tried and I wasn't particularly successful at it. And right around the time I would imagine I would have started caring about that. I started to see what else was on the buffet menu and things escalated. A lot more pills came into play. The, for those who, for those who, have a healthy relationship with hallucinogenics. DC is a phenomenal, those monuments are amazing in general, full stop. Mm -hmm. And we found them to be absolutely amazing 
while under the influence of hallucinogenics. So I did that quite frequently. Never went to class. I didn't, I just figured, you know, there was funding coming in. I, it seemed to cover rent. I somehow had additional funds without really much work to spend on things that I'm sure I was not, that they weren't, that money wasn't set aside for me to buy the things I was buying. And it just got, things got real quiet. Things got real quiet. I got real isolated. I could navigate from group to group on the periphery without real engagement, without really getting to know anybody or and certainly not without letting them get to know me. And I think that was a big fear for me. I was always terrified of vulnerability because it, I felt listless right out of the gate. And it terrified me that if you got to know me with some consistency, you might get a read on me that I didn't yet have on me. The idea that you could get to know me better than I knew me scared the hell out of me. And if I was always messed up, then you just knew me messed up, right? You didn't actually get to know me. It was this strange, and it made total sense to me. It was like such an effective barrier and block. So that was the move. And it, it things got progressively more challenging. I couldn't really sidestep how depressed I was as a result of coming off most of the stuff that I was coming off of. No matter how much I ramped up frequency of use, it just, it, the downhill was tough. It didn't help. Some of the stuff I was doing was really spiking my dopamine. So it was a cliff. And it got to the point I hopped on a train and was going to go up to Yukon, maybe. Was it Yukon? I was going to go up to Connecticut stay at a friend's house at, or a friend's dorm for a week and then get on a plane and take a one-way trip to, to Europe. I just decided that's what I was going to do. That would solve all the problems. <laughs> and I stayed for longer than a week and I got back on the train and I went back down to DC and then called my parents. I had a, I don't know, moment of clarity. I'm not sure what the, what the motivation was. Uh, maybe it's just a window of, geez, I don't know, pure speculation independent. I'm not going to assign a significance to it. I called my parents and told them that I had just gotten back from Connecticut. U Hartford. That's what it was. I went to Uha. I just came back from a week and that I actually was planning to leave and not tell anybody. I think I told my best friend at the time. And that was a whole bunch of red flags for them to hear. And I, there was some like academic probation situations. And ultimately it was decided by everybody it was time to come home. And I got a good job. And then I realized that that good job when I was back in Boston and yeah, it just, I could maintain, I just recalibrated and maintained with a degree of success, socially, financially, romantically, that was like, oh, okay, college wasn't for me. We're good now. We're just going to do this. And things were, I'll stick with maintain. I maintained for a considerable amount of time, like a, like really hung in there mm -hmm. real good. And, um, and I to, just to clarify this for everybody listening, so that that maintenance process, you were still an active addict at that point. Oh yes, keeping yes, yeah, yes. functional, very if, important, maybe functional. Yes, my friends and I used to joke. So this is a good way to fast track to to actually talking about the solution. My friends and I used to joke at about three o'clock in the morning. Most of these friends, by the way, were were at my intervention. We used to joke initially with great levity how high of functioning alcoholics and addicts we were. It blew our minds away. We were attorneys. We were it just like killing it superficially, like ticking all the boxes and cutting it up aggressively as far mm -hmm. as consumption of mind-altering substances. And we used to laugh hysterically about it, like celebratory, right? And then fast track, maybe even as little as six months later, someone would say it again 
and there'd be like a little chuckle, right? Six mm-hmm. months later, someone would bring it up again. And this time there's like liquid codeine being passed around the basement mm-hmm. while we're quote unquote joking about how quote unquote high functioning we are, right? And then there was maybe like somebody would snicker, maybe. And then it got to the point where it was like, damn, do you remember when we used to think that we were high functioning alcoholics and addicts? And that that's really, that really sums it up. Like the details mm-hmm. of it are, they are what they are and they're individual, they're subjective. Like everybody's yeah. journey in, in, in my experience, it just has different particulars. So I thought I was going to a wedding in upstate New York in June of 2013. And it turns out that a whole bunch of people who loved me way more than I loved myself at the time thought better of it. And I had an intervention and they sent me down to a program in Florida for 90 days in the summer, which is a a challenging experience anyway. I had done a couple of abstinence-based meetings. I had done some Narcotics Anonymous meetings up in Boston, some Alcoholics Anonymous meetings up in Boston, mostly NA because that was what was taking me down super efficiently at the time. And I was getting high before I went in, right? And like often leaving halfway through to get high again, because it wasn't lasting as long as it once did. So just nothing was taking. And I guess I found out later, my friend called my parents is how I understand it. And there had just been a wave of deaths in his life in in the area in Connecticut where he had come up and the people that he had known. And I, I think more or less he called my parents and was like, I've been to like X amount of funerals in the last year and a half. I'm not going to math. And that was it. Somebody else on the periphery who had the benefit of surely loving me with an intensity and intimacy as a best friend would, a different quality of love than a family member, but maybe perhaps more willing or freer from blinders that I can only imagine parents would have watching their own son go through something like this. And it was enough. It was jarring enough that it jump-started a process. I went down to Florida in June, was ready to come back up to Boston. And it was what I like to say is Boston made it clear that returning to Boston wasn't really in the cards. There were no couches available for me to crash on. So I ended up coming to here, to Asheville, North Carolina. I landed in Asheville at the regional airport in Asheville, North Carolina on September 4th, 2013. Having spent, I think exactly, I don't know, almost somewhere around 90 days in Florida for from June, I landed around midnight, June 7th. June 8th was the first day that I woke up in in the better part of 20 years without being under the influence of anything. So June 8th, 2013 is the day that I mark as the as the first day of my sobriety journey. And thus far, it is still that date, which is something that I try not to think about as often as I do. Even 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 now, I thought at some point it would be like, oh yeah, I guess it is the day. And it's usually I can get through nine months. And when I'm within two or three months of that date, I start seeing how many days it is until and Yeah. I'm kind to myself in that awareness. And oh, there's still plenty of work to do on deflating that ego, I can see. So that's <laughs> all right. But I came here and the program that I lived in was a sober home. I was 33. My roommate was 19. And inside of five minutes of meeting him, I wanted to wring his neck. (laughs) I couldn't deal with being 33 at a sober home. I was calling it a halfway house. I didn't know what else to call it. Mm -hmm. Most people did. And all this shame and guilt of where I found myself. I'm such a loser. Like I, in, in treatment, I just, I learned that system and learned how to navigate it. It made the time go by really quick. So it was awesome. But I just, I had a lot of trouble sidestepping this self-assigned shame and guilt of being in a sober home. On Sundays, they took us hiking. And for the first time, overwhelming guilt and shame. 
But during that hike, I was just, I was hiking with people who I don't think I would have joined a meetup to go hiking with, but I was just hiking with some other guys. This is one of the first times in decades that I felt a little out of place and definitely out of shape. And I was just hiking. That was it. I'd like to think that reflection was available almost immediately upon that. And what went from, I can't possibly stay here for six months or the six weeks that I bargained to stay when I first moved in became after that hike, I was like, I can do this. So I got through this six month suggested stay. My motivation was just getting from hike to hike, Sunday to Sunday. It recharged me enough to get me to about Friday. And then I get a little antsy, but then the anticipation of the next hike was enough to keep me focused. And I successfully completed their program at the time. I think that just meant I didn't fail a drug test. Like it wasn't quite, it's a much more robust program than it was at the time. And then I took over the gig and I noticed pretty immediately that the residents of this program were telling me stuff that, that felt significant. It was another one of those things where I was assigning significance to the, to the vulnerability and trust that they were giving me. They just met me. And we ended up... I ended up asking on a number of occasions, hey, this is, we're going to be done with this hike in a mile. <laughs> That's 30 minutes. Do you mind if I share this with your case manager? I feel like you can work with through the, a lot of this stuff. That's why we're there. And with almost, I think there was one exception and I couldn't tell you what the exception was, but with other than that exception, everyone was fine with it. Yeah. It just never occurred to me when I'm talking to my case manager at the program to bring this stuff up. So like that happened weeks and weeks at a time. And I was like... My ability to build rapport aside, which I think is notable, and something else was going on. It was crystal clear. Though. This is not just me. When I come to learn, knew in school that the Appalachian Mountains were the oldest, knew there was wisdom here, knew it. Found out that people talk about vortexes of energy in this area, would leave to visit my parents and come home, and friends from here would say, oh, it's just great coming back to these mountains. They hug you. I just kept hearing all this stuff. So I was like, all right, there's something going on in nature. And I just happen to be here when it's happening. And this is an area that at the time, there was a number of wilderness therapy programs. There are less today. And very snarky, because I can be, my observation became from enrollment in, a, in wilderness therapy until day 74, it's the transformation, the transformative power of nature, healing mechanism of change, unbelievable, the, the power of awe, all these things. Day 75, you get discharged. Day 76, go to school, get a job. And that's reductive. And it was not that simple. And I also had six to nine months of sobriety time and everything needed to be very black and white. So it just my brain could not conceptualize nuances. So I started asking questions like, why are we bailing? That's what I saw. I saw like, all right, you're telling me this isn't like inherent in change and growth and healing. And then it's, and then school and jobs. And I could appreciate the practicality of that. You're a young adult, you're 18, 19, 23, 24, 33, like myself. You, if you want to live, like function, you got to get a job. At the time, college was a part of that. Maybe yeah. not as much as I had perceived it to be, and certainly not as much as it is now. But it was, that was that linear trajectory. And just over the years, I don't know, I, I started working with this one house where I was a former resident, then another house heard about what I was doing. So I started working with them every other Saturday, then another house heard about it. So then the other Saturday was full. Then another house suggested their residents didn't do anything for the first like month and a half that they were there, and really just 
get grounded in the community. So now like the work week opened up and I remember sitting at a barbecue joint at the time. It was great. I have different opinions about the quality of its ribs now, but like, I remember sitting at a barbecue joint with 10 or more of my friends and just being like, we should all quit our jobs. There's something to this. We're just going to take people hiking. We're going to take people in early recovery hiking, and we're just going to let whatever happens. That'll be the intentionality behind it. It won't be, we're not pathologizing. We're not going to do, and I didn't know any of these words at the time, but I was like, (laughs) we're not going to be as, it's not going to be rigid. We're just going to show up and be authentic. And we're just going to let what happens happen. Because that's what I've been experiencing on the weekends. And I don't even think anyone laughed it off. I don't even think anyone registered or acknowledged that I even opened my mouth. But I was convinced that something was going on. So I I took a business foundations class. I was working Monday through Friday full time, Saturdays and Sundays in the woods. I took a business foundations class during the 18 months of working seven days a week straight for three hours a night for a number of Mondays in a row. As a result of that, I got a micro loan to buy a bunch of paddle boards and, and hardtails and a bigger vehicle because I was borrowing houses, minivans at the time. I paid what, the 80 bucks for a Wix website. I got a bunch of of business cards that I've never felt more significant or established or important in my life. (laughs) And I just started telling people about what we were doing. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of resistance and confusion about like, why would this We our staff takes, we go hiking all the time. I was like, I know I used to do it too. I'm just saying there's an opportunity to add a lot more intentionality and authenticity and actually apply the conversations that naturally are occurring in the woods to real world setting, right? And it it was an uphill battle for for years. This is eventually in 2017, I registered with North Carolina as a limited liability company because I just thought I had a lot of exposure because of the activities we were doing and that was the most appropriate thing to do. In 2019, North Carolina had raised the age legislation and suddenly the Department of Juvenile Justice was going to support programs and young adults as old as 16 and 17 who might be court involved. And it resulted in some federal funding coming through. And I was introduced to the Department of Juvenile Justice and Diversion Programming in Buncombe County. And the a bunch of people applied for some addition, a couple grand extra to accommodate the, the influx, the anticipated influx of 16 and 17-year-olds. I walked in with a nonprofit status tax exempt status pending from the IRS and asked them to fully fund a program that they had never heard of. And again, much like at the barbecue joint, they didn't even say no. They just went on to the next presentation. (laughs) And that was really a huge, I, I love the name of our organization. That was a huge pivot point for us because instead of, or in addition to working with Residents at sober homes, which was a relatively, for all sorts of reasons, not just sad reasons, but relatively revolving door of participants. I now got, because eventually the following year, we got a six month contract with DJJ. And that meant I had up to 10 kids at a time to work with 10 to 13 weeks in a row. And I could start scaffolding and and formalize a curriculum. Mm-hmm. So like over the over this time I become an alcohol and drug counselor. I learned about this program that Michael Jospi created out in Boulder, Colorado called the Nature Connected Coaching Credential, which is offered through Earth-Based Institute. He took a lot of what of wisdom that he learned from Naropa University in creating this curriculum and I had been doing this work intuitively for mm-hmm. maybe 2 years at this point just as a 1099 contractor and then I found out about this curriculum and I read it and I was like Holy shit, 
this is like going to school for what I actually am good at. It was fantastic. Mm-hmm. There was this interest and purpose and aptitude and passion in this beautiful, perfect storm. And so I did. I took that course. I loved every second of it. And like it called on me to get vulnerable. And I think it called on me to get to, to step into authenticity. And I think part of the reason today that the work that we do is such an effective mechanism for change is we attract staff administrative to facilitators who are incapable of being anything other than themselves. And we don't do anything or facilitate any in, in any processes with clients in the woods that we don't also do in team meetings in my office on a monthly basis, giving and receiving feedback, core value identification. Some of those cheesy, where do you see yourself in five years questions <laughs> that you would ask in an interview actually have to qualify. Like it, And I'm not going to hire you based on this answer. I want to know how either myself as an individual who's been in this recovery world for 10 years or how Pivot Point can help you get there. Because if you're good at helping people, I would love for you to stay here. And part of me doesn't give a shit. Like, just go Mm -hmm. help, right? Yeah. So we get this opportunity to scaffold and build out a curriculum. And then COVID comes. And other than two months of when they actually closed the National Forest, which I didn't know (laughs) they could do, but they did it. Yeah. But with the exception of that time... We were operating. We were. We provide transportation. We were essentially using ambulatory healthcare protocols, so windows cracked, temperature checked, mm-hmm. masks on, and we were going to the national forest. So distancing was not a thing. And we started working. We created this like resilience-based curriculum. Bex Logan, who's now the program director at the Willows at Red Oak Recovery, I had absolute honor to get to work with her for a number of years, and she helped navigate some challenging times, a a brand new nonprofit with an innovative delivery model during a global pandemic. You learn a lot, right? About yourself and about how to do, how to run a program. Yeah. And she was phenomenal. She is phenomenal. And, and was in, in essentially put together this 12 session, six week resilience based program that we wrote, we created for an organization in town Originally, we were going to imbue them, imbue them, that might be the right word, with resilience. We were going to just gift them resilience. And then we met the kids and we got to know the kids and we're like, we can't teach them shit about resilience. (laughs) We need to just listen and learn about resilience. So we shifted, we pivoted again to really just focus on, and it's the birthplace of our original tagline, really just focus on you have resilience in spades, in abundance. It is overwhelming and it's clear and proven because you're sitting at this table right now. So let's help you identify it. Let's take a look at your behaviors, your words, your decisions, and highlight where the resilience is showing and expressing itself within the things that you're already doing intuitively. And that became like where we landed with Pivot Point. Originally, it was Pivot Point WNC, have an experience. Not have our experience, not let us prescribe an experience for you, but really let's collaborate and navigate processes through which we can identify the experience that we are having and fully engage in it, right? And then on the back end, that opens the door and provides access points to, oh, I don't like, I don't like this experience. I don't like the emotional reactivity I'm having to this experience. Cool. Now we're starting to get into like core values and Today, if we fast forward to today, we're getting into core value identification and the ACT matrix and person-centered models. Mm -hmm. 
choice point theory and all these really funky clinical things. Yeah. And it really is just anchored in relationship. Today, mm-hmm. it says transformation through relationship because yeah. that's where it happens. Yeah. While you're in a beautiful natural setting and still right back to that connection to the earth and what happened for you when you hiked every Sunday, like all of that. Yeah. It, we're at our almost at our hour. We're going to go a little longer on this one today. Oh, I'm my gonna, bad. <laughs> no, not your bad at all. This is great. I wanted this whole story to come out in there. And I know there's more. I know there's a lot more to this story. But I want to highlight a few things and I want to bring some things out from what you've talked about because I think it's really important. First of all, everything that you've talked about has been this very organic process of your life. And Dave knows this about me. I know this about him and people who are listening who know me. Like my entire business right now in my career has been something that developed organically. I never had a business plan. I never had a an idea of, oh, this is what it's going to look like in five years. I never had a five-year plan. I never had any of those things. I just organically grew. And like what you're talking about from something from a very simple concept. And then yes, I love the name pivot point. We all have pivot points in our lives and they're going to happen no matter who we are, no matter what age we are, nothing like, so I, I just think that's important for everyone to understand that, that everything that you've talked about has been this incredible journey from being a child all the way to where you are now to what you're providing for other people has been a completely organic process. And that, gosh, we could talk all day long about the positives and the negatives and the challenges and the successes of that organic process. But I think it's important because when we are living that organic journey in life, then everything we do is going to be for the greatest good of all. And I, I really believe that. And I don't often find a lot of other business people who operate from that model because it's not their traditional business model. That's not how business school tells us to do it. That's the advantage of being blackout drunk when you were in business school. (laughs) There you go. There's one of the gifts. So I just want to highlight that I think for anybody out there who is either considering ways to help other people and you feel like you're being hampered by the system, step out of the system. Where is it? Where are you organically? What is the next right thing? What's the next right step to take and take that and don't be afraid of that. I think that's important. Another point that I think is really important. Let me get this one, Dave, and then I'll I'll come back to you. Another really important point just of your story as a whole, especially for the parents who are listening to this podcast right now, is you're telling your personal story and the life that you had and the parents that loved you with everything and were able to provide an education for you and and really probably were somewhat oblivious to what was really going on with you or had some blinders on because they are parents. I think it's important for you as parents out there listening to this story to know this can happen, that you're not alone. This can happen to anybody in any situation, regardless of socioeconomic positioning in life, regardless of location, regardless of whatever's happening in the family dynamic. You can have a young adult who you discover has an addiction issue no matter what. And it's okay. It's okay to open your eyes. It's okay to embrace that. It's okay to step in and help in a way that may not be welcomed at the moment, but also is really important. And I think that's a real quick kind of summary of what your parents did. And so if you need to rewind this and listen to that part of his story again, do so and hear it from the perspective of a parent 
who may be having challenges with your own young adult. I just want to highlight that. I think that's really important. Dave, I know you'll forget, so I'm going to you next. Matt, it's beautiful. And again, I mean, there's another hour we can go on because you've hit so many things in so many ways. But I'll just stick to the two points. The org, the org, organicity, I don't know, it's not, you made up words, I can make up words. <laughs> the organicity of what you're saying is so critical for us and also as parents because we want to have a you are here. We constantly want to put the dot in and say, I am here. This is where I was. This is where I'm going. And your life is just, you couldn't make this shit up to use one of your favorite words. And so there's just a way of the trusting in that process, the trusting in the not knowing, whether it's because you're blacked out drunk or life has just taken away all these ideas you had about what it is. So I think just that capacity that, that your life is a model and a kind of proof of a proof of concept, you don't have to know where you are and you don't know where you are. Any place you think you are is just, it's just your mind making stuff up. And I think that just gets to the other point that I wanted to make following up on Angie and following up on you is that as a parent, I just saw my daughter yesterday for the first time in a long time. And it's just, I can't figure out how she got here or how she's going to get to where I hope she might be. And I listened to your perfect journey. Your journey's perfect for where you are. And, and again, to go through that, to have that proof of concept that you can go through all this stuff where so many look on the way and say, this is just one big mess after another but it was all your perfect journey to come and be able to give the gift that you're giving. So I want to acknowledge that gift and also just use that for ourselves in terms of our ability to trust in our, in ourselves and in our children's journeys. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And Matt, that is something that we talk about on this podcast a lot is that perfect journey. And that for parents, it may not be the way that, we as parents see our kids progressing in life or what we had hoped for them or any of those kinds of things. But at the same time, we can't predict what's going to come down the road. And so we're, that's obvious with you. That's obvious with your (laughs) own personal journey. Like nobody could have predicted this, but I want to, as we, we come to the close of this, I want to take you to the population that you're working with right now, because you're working with some of the people who've walked the same journey that you've walked at Pivot Point. They're coming in. And so my question for you is, it can seem cliche, I'm in recovery, so therefore I can help other people. That can seem a little cliche. Um, sure. The other side of that is that I can't ever tell someone, I know what it feels like to be in your shoes because I'm not in recovery. So I want you to just talk a little bit about how you feel that this journey that you've discussed and shared with us today how it has that really, what's the right word, maybe influenced the way that you're working with the clientele at Pivot Point. How, do, how oh. does your personal journey help you in that role? Sure. Yeah, no, I appreciate that question and the qualifier of it. I think <laughs> this is my personal opinion, as are, as is everything else that I've said today. I think it's bullshit to assume that because I am in recovery, I know what it's like for somebody else in recovery to live a day. I know what it's like to have challenging interactions with parents and loved ones and to, I'm going to wake up and not get drunk or high today and then find yourself get drunk or high. I know all those things, but I don't know. I don't know anything about your shoes other than you're wearing them. And I want to start by saying that it leads me into what I think we do. Actually, somewhat recently, I've been talking about this with some frequency with our team. There's one of the many trending Focal area, focal points of who this program supports and who that program supports. And we utilize the same term, right? It's called failure to launch. 
I think that the Pivot Point program supports and is an effective mechanism change for individuals who I would label as failure to fail. Mm. I think we've created a system and a program and an approach and a rapport building strategy in a condensed delivery model that allows you to fail beautifully <laughs> for six intentional weeks in a con- in a not a controlled environment but in a supportive supervised environment so that you may have the experience because that's all I've done this mm-hmm. perfect journey is I got real good at picking myself up allowing other people to help me pick myself up mm-hmm. and brush the dirt off of the skin knees and the dirty shirt that's yeah. what I've done there's stubbornness there's some tenacity and there's some there's definitely ego in there and pride and I just I've gotten real good at failing I think not- in a it's literal so sense, I can't surf, but like I've gotten good at surfing. Yeah. Is that a kabat zin? Like you can punch the waves or you can learn to surf. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I call it failing successfully in my world. Yeah. It's so important. And I love that. I love that. And I another thing that you talked about was when you have that space. We call that the great pause. <laughs> when Dave and I are working with other parents, we tell parents to take that pause. So not even, not only just for somebody in recovery, but having that space of I'm having an experience of anger and experience of anxiety. But yeah. for parents, it's that pause of not having that emotional reaction to something, being able to take that moment to pause and allow the situation to become clear before doing anything. And you talked about that and how important that that is still huge, in your huge. day-to-day life. If I had to, if I had to say, okay, here are the three really important points from this incredible story, it would be that parents need to really understand your story and understand that they're not doing anything wrong. I guess that's the thing. You're not doing something wrong. You're being a parent. You're doing the best you can do with what you know at the time. And always knowing that there can be this incredible outcome as well as the outcome that you're so afraid of. Both of those things can exist. That it's really important for all of us as humans, regardless of what our journey is, to have that pause, to have that moment of just allowing and being and embodying the experience that you're having. A lot of times I say, I welcome in those hard emotions and let them be a part of my experience because if not for them, I don't ever know how to fail successfully. And so then that's my third point. Failure is so important to resilience, knowing how to fail, knowing how to be able to do that and pick yourself up and to ask for help and to accept help and compliments and all those things that you've talked about. Those are really critical points to anybody's journey to allowing them to find that way to move forward. And so it's my hope that we have parents who are going to be listening to this, that we maybe have people who are struggling with addiction who are going to hear this and maybe hear your story. And also to any young adults who are in that place of (laughs) college, we're going to move from this college to that college, this college, we're going to Europe, we're going here, we're going to do a gap year, we're going to do all these things. That's my world. I see that all the time. And what is the right thing? I'm not sure what the right thing. It's different for everybody. But there's a whole group, especially since COVID, of young adults in the world who are really flailing right now, who are really struggling for what is the next right step. And Pivot Point may be that next right step for them. I'm really hopeful that we have all of those folks listening and have the ability to touch those all the folks in those different parts of the world. For all of our listeners, we're going to put all of Matt's contact information in our show notes. We'll put a link in there to Pivot Point. Matt, if it's okay with you, we'll put your email in. That's if that's Absolutely. Okay. You can put okay. my cell number in. That's fine. Okay. 
you and I are the same person on so many levels. The first time I told Dave we could put my cell number, he's like, oh, no, you don't want to do that. I'm like, yeah, actually, I do. <laughs> How else am I supposed to talk to people? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So can anyway. I sh- can, I sh- can I just share one more thing? Yeah, I know I've already absolutely. rambled. Yeah. I just want to say, because you, the two of you keep mentioning the parents who are listening to this, and I want to... Ch- I just want to put this out there and I'm curious how it lands. I love my parents. I have been really challenging for them at times in sobriety as well. Probably more. I love them. We have a beautiful relationship, right? We navigate being both friends and offspring and parent. And we do it with not that much grace because we're all humans and we're a family and all the things. And I just wanted to add that to the what could come of somebody's messy, clunky, scary journey. I love my family. I love mm-hmm. my parents. I love my brother. I love my niece. So I just wanted to be real clear about that. Yeah. No, I think that's really important. Dave? One point. I'll be brief. And that is that I want to go back to the first thing I brought up, which was the love language. This is really a language of love. And the fact that we so much of what we disqualify ourselves for, if we go back and look, it's because we have a, a love language that isn't healthy, but it's still a love language. And so there's just a way of being easy with ourselves and being easy with our children and even with our parents for whatever. The fact that I, I just want to make the point, even though I know we're going late and everything else, is that this is a love story. And all of our lives are love stories. And however that love language manifests, we have all kinds of judgment around it, and we have to take responsibility for how it manifests, but it's still love language. And you're a beautiful man of love, and you're bringing that out in so many different ways, and I just want to thank you for taking this really hard journey and getting up on the cross for a nice Jewish boy, and (laughs) being able to bring all this to everyone else. So that's it. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Matt. We appreciate having you here. That was great. Canaan Valley Spa is a world-class destination in Davis, West Virginia, providing an experience of wellness and comfort to visitors. Go to www.canaanvalleyspawwv.com to learn more.